You're listening to The Hunt with your hosts, Matt Woodward and Dan Adler. Welcome to The Hunt with Matt and Dan podcast. We're thankful that you're here with us today, spending a little bit of your time on a subject that is near and dear to most Western big game hunters' hearts and Easterners who aspire to be Western big game hunters' hearts, and that's the Rocky Mountain elk, one of the species that uh, keep me up at night, one of the species that has led to uh, a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, conversations with my friends and family. Ultimately, the Rocky Mountain elk in my life has led to my beloved spouse just taking a big black Sharpie to the entire month of September in our home. Uh, special thanks to our sponsors, Zero Outfitter Fees and Husqvarna Scopes. Here with Matt Woodward. You can reach Matt, Matt at DiamondOutfitters.com, 520-820-4728. Good friend, business partner here at Diamond Outfitters, and we are going to talk a lot about elk. And the elk story in Arizona is a beautiful one, not only as a trophy huntable animal, but as a species. How it evolved here and how we have this uh, population of elk that we have today. It's a pretty unique story uh, that Matt's going to share with us uh, as how we got our Rocky Mountain elk into the state. Matt, take it away. Hey, thanks, Dan. Sure appreciate it. Yeah, Arizona's original elk uh, were the Merriam's elk, hunted to extinction by early pioneers and settlers. At least that's kind of how the story goes. We're going to circle back around to those Merriam's probably a couple times today. But uh, we basically, we didn't have a lot of elk in Arizona, or essentially none, as was the thought at the time, uh, back around the turn of the century in the 1890s and 20th century. Uh, so Arizona was granted statehood back in 1912, and our very first governor was George Hunt. Uh, in 1913, just a year later, George Hunt got together with a group of Arizona sportsmen and purchased 83 head of elk out of Yellowstone National Park. So that is where Arizona's elk come from. These are Rocky Mountain, uh, El Rocky Mountain elk out of Yellowstone National Park. And those 83 head of elk were shipped down on rail cars uh, that summer. Uh, they were kept in some pens and eventually turned loose right near Chevlon Canyon, Chevlon Canyon Lake up on top of the Colorado Plateau here. Uh, above us in central Arizona. From those 83 head of Rocky Mountain elk that uh, were initially released in Arizona, uh, they have built themselves up to about 35,000 head of elk today, probably almost 36,000 head of elk in our state today. And so it's a wonderful conservation success story, and it uh, goes to show you what uh, what sportsmen can do, and they put their heads together and, and uh, turn, that, uh, turn that elk uh, situation around dramatically. And so that, that is the story of where Arizona got its elk, and... Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how we hunt those elk and about some of those elk individual. And uh, Dan's got an interesting theory. We wanted to talk a little bit about these, like I mentioned, the Rocky Mountain elk that exist in Arizona. But a lot of us in Arizona feel that uh, some of the elk tend to differ a little bit. And uh, Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of your thoughts on, on some eastern Arizona elk and, and what their story is. So I have a, I hate to call it conspiracy theory, but it, it may be close to that on our, on our Rocky Mountain elk. And Every time I hear the story about Governor Hunt, I can't help but find the irony in his last name as our first governor and uh, his vision. You know, I think of guys like Governor Hunt. I think of guys like uh, Thomas Grable. I think of guys like uh, Theodore Roosevelt as these conservationists, these pioneers, and what they've meant to uh, the West as the pioneers settled and came out West and wildlife populations went down and then how fine guys like them came around and brought wildlife populations back from near extinction in some cases. And of course, a lot of folks may not know that uh, our affiliation with elk today in the high pines and the high mountains is not a natural activity for elk. They prefer to be grazers down in the flats, but the theory is uh, as the railroads were built out west, they kind of got pushed up the trees and they adapted to that. And uh, they're not browsers like deer, although they're in the deer family. They really do prefer to be grazers, and that's why on some of the hunts they're pretty subject uh, to be vulnerable in fields and marshes and things like that. So, Matt, I have a, my own theory. You know, when you think about if I was to put you on a magic carpet ride and take you back in time right now, and if we went to the turn of the century, 20th century, and we think about calling the Merriam's elk extinct, to me, extinct is such a huge word. And extinct is forever. Extinct is permanent. And here's my theory. You know, today we have incredible technology. We have GPS. We have GPS tracking. We have radio callers. We have satellites. We have mortality callers. Uh, we have DNA testing. The list of wildlife benefiting services our game and fish departments have at their disposal today is massive compared to what it was uh, about 110, 105 years ago when we're talking about 1913 when these elk came off railway cars uh, from Yellowstone National Park. And my theory is this, you know, if you look in the Arizona 
I'm sorry, if you look in the record books, whether it's Pope and Young or SCI or Boone and Crockett, specifically for elk, whether it's archery rifle or muzzleloader, considering our state population of elk hovers between 30,000 and 32,000, 35,000 maybe in a really good year, compared to like 60,000 elk in New Mexico, uh, 330,000 head elk in Colorado, we have a huge disproportionate amount of trophy heads in those record books. And sure, we can talk about great management, we could talk about great habitat, we could talk about having a permit system that restricts the amount of hunts. But at the end of the day, on that magic carpet ride, Matt, I think it's really hard to say that without the technology we have now, 105 years ago, how could we really say the Miriam's elk was extinct? You think about how big our canyons are, you think about the lack of that technology. For me, again, no scientific backing on this, just my opinion as a guide and outfitter in the state for you know, I've lived here essentially my whole life except for my Air Force time. And when you look at the disproportionate amount of record heads and you look at how big, sometimes in a good genetics year or in a good moisture year, how big these antlers are on the body size of these elk, to me it makes me wonder if it's not possible or even likely that we still have the descendant of the Merriam's elk stream in our Rocky Mountain elk today. And I think when we go out in the field, Matt, you and I go out and glass different parts of the state. I think some of these elk, you know, it's the old Sesame Street song, I think it is. Which of these things is not like the other? And uh, to me, just looking at thousands of elk over my career, hundreds of elk a year, um, there's a real difference in, in a lot of these elk appearance, size, weight, coat, antler configuration. What's your experience been when you look around the state at different herds of elk? Because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not a scientist. I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. I'm not out there running DNA tests on these elk to say whether they're Merriam's elk or not, or hybrid Merriam's elk or not. But when you're out there, you're out there as much or more than I am. What are you seeing out there as far as some of these different elk? And what do you think about my conspiracy theory? Am I one flew over the cuckoo's nest? You're going to drop me off at the mental hospital? Or do you think there might be something to it? Yeah, you know, Dan, I'm sure there's a lot of folks that would, that would probably disagree with you. I'm, I'm going to not be one of those people. I feel like there's a tremendous difference in our elk from eastern to central and northwestern Arizona. At least per our game and fish department, uh, statistically, uh, elk in far eastern Arizona must live to a slightly older age to achieve the similar antler size of elk in, in say, western or north central Arizona. They seem to be a little bit different elk. They seem to have more massive antlers. And just in years of looking at elk, uh, say we, we head up to northwestern Arizona, and then the next day drive to far eastern Arizona, the elk have a little bit of a different uh, look or different feel to them. So um, say through the, the reservations like the White Mountain Apache and the San Carlos all the way over to eastern Arizona, and maybe even including uh, places like uh, uh, along the Mogollon Rim and Unit 23 and such, uh, those elk have a little bit of a different look and feel and, and certainly different antler configuration, in my opinion, than a lot of the elk that we find, say, a, above the Mogollon Rim and out to northwestern Arizona when we're looking at uh, the units uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, along that kind of block of the state. And so, yeah, I could not agree with you more, Dan. I, I believe that uh, you've got two different styles of elk there. Harks back to those, uh, those Merriams or a little Merriam gene it was left over, a little remnant gene of Merriam elk was maybe not quite extinct. So like you mentioned earlier, extinction is a pretty harsh word. Um, you're talking about uh, a couple million acres of uh, federal ground over there, national forest ground and, and federally designated wilderness area along the uh, eastern Arizona, New Mexico border. And uh, some, some of the most rugged country in Arizona, for that matter. And, and certainly we lost most of the elk. There's, yeah. I don't think there's any denying that we lost the vast majority of the elk. Certainly something to consider and talk about. There's a chance that there may be, may have been some remnant genes in that area. Again, because if we look at those elk today, an elk in northwestern Arizona can typically achieve a large antler size at a much younger age than an elk in eastern Arizona can. And, you know, I think it brings in uh, an interesting component that's worth talking about. And obviously for folks that are listening to The Hunt with Matt and Dan podcast, most of them are going to be hunters. But for those of you that are maybe not hunters that are listening today, or maybe more accurately for those of you that have non-hunters in your family or non-hunter friendships, this is a really good opportunity um, for reality and science to uh, maybe replace the anti-hunting sentiment uh, that seems to be gaining ground in our communities today. Uh, specifically, if, if somebody was to not from a feeling perspective, but if somebody was really to study up on 
species like the elk, the Rocky Mountain elk, uh, the Merriam's turkey, the eastern turkey, the eastern whitetail, uh, pronghorn antelope, bison. You know, here in 2019, uh, we are leaps and bounds above where we were. Uh, when we hear all these horror stories of overhunting or poaching or all these different things, the North American conservation model works. I mean, we are at all-time historical highs of certain species all throughout the Midwest, the Southwest, uh, certainly in the Northwest part of the United States and, and the central northern part of the United States where wolves and grizzly bears are, are causing a lot of grief. Numbers aren't what they used to be. But big picture, Matt, I think it's important for people to understand, especially the non-hunting community, hunting is the number one conservation tool and it's because of hunters' actions and also their dollars that wildlife populations throughout the West are as strong as they've been in 50 to 100 years, depending on the species. And I don't think we spend enough time talking about that. I couldn't agree more, Dan. I think the uh, conservation success story of the elk in Arizona is just overlooked. A lot of us just take it for granted that Arizona's got elk and got good quality elk hunting, but it wasn't always that way. And even in my grandfather's lifetime, elk were not hunted in Arizona. Um, and so uh, uh, my grandfather was around for the uh, introduction of Arizona's first elk hunts. And, you know, I'm not, I can't recall exactly looking back what year that was, but uh, so this is a relatively uh, recent phenomenon that we're enjoying here in, in Arizona and down in the Southwest, hunting these big bulls. Or like I said, our grandfathers and great-grandfathers didn't have this, this chance. So this is the good old days of elk hunting in the, in the Southwest for sure. I think that is important for people to understand that if you're a non-hunter, uh, that's okay. But if you really want to do something important for wildlife, I have a couple of suggestions. Uh, join Safari Club International. Join the Arizona Elk Society. Join the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Buy a hunting license from the Arizona Game and Fish. You can support Arizona's wildlife at a high level uh, simply by buying one of those licenses or one of those memberships. And folks, even if you never set foot in the field, you're still supporting wildlife. In fact, believe it or not, it's hunters who imposed a self-tax with the Pittman-Roberts Act. We pay for most of the activities enjoyed today by mountain bikers, RVers, fishermen, kayakers. Uh, I can go down the list. Hikers. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a litany of different outdoor activities. Yeah. Between the Dingle Johnson Act for, for fishing and sport fisheries, uh, water um, conservation, uh, and Pittman-Robertson with more of the hunting and taxing ammunition and our supplies, uh, those two combined uh, really cover uh, the outdoor recreation uh, that we enjoy here in, in America. Yeah, if you do a lot of those outdoor activities uh, that aren't hunting or fishing, the money, and I say this with nothing but love in my heart, we, we want you out in the outdoors, we appreciate it, but most of the money that supports those activities comes from the sales of hunting and fishing equipment, licenses, et cetera. And those are all self-imposed taxes. In a very tax-sensitive society today, these are taxes we gladly pay. And we've, we foot the bill, so to speak, for a lot of these other outdoor activities. And we're okay doing that. We're not complaining about it. But if you're out there enjoying some of those other benefits uh, here in our state or anywhere out west, just keep in mind that the majority of the funding uh, comes from those taxes. So uh, you can do your part simply by buying a hunting license every year and, and putting it right in the trash can and never exercising it, but you are contributing back to our state's wildlife. So I think that's, I think that's worth noting uh, because the story of elk in our state and throughout the West, thanks to the Yellowstone herd originally, uh, is so dominant now today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we can say the same thing about uh, desert bighorn and Rocky Mountain, bighorn sheep in Arizona as well. And of course, the, what's happened up on the North Rim of the Kaibab over the last 50 to 75 years, and that uh, that's on its way back as well. So um, we owe that to, to hunters and sportsmen. And uh, if you're not a hunter, make sure to thank a hunter. Absolutely. Matt, I want to spend some time talking a bit. Uh, obviously, people listen to the hunt with Matt and Dan one here a lot about hunting these elk. And uh, we talked uh, in previous episodes about different opportunities to hunt elk in Arizona, different opportunities to hunt them in New Mexico. And we want to focus a lot of the energy in that, on this episode into specifically to elk and no other species. Uh, so when we think about elk in, in Arizona, when we think about the hunting opportunity, we have come up with uh, basically a three-prong approach. And when evaluating what type of hunt is right for our clients, there's a lot of varying factors, their age, their physicality, uh, their choice of how they want to go about elk, whether it's archery, whether it's rifle, whether it's muzzleloader. And all of our Diamond Outfitters clients get a, an eight to 12 minute phone consultation. And the general question in figuring out what elk hunt is right for one of our clients is the question is, what type of hunter are you? And by that I'm asking, are you the type of hunter who would like to hunt elk with us every three to four years, some type of a more predictable model? We talked in previous episodes about draws. We talked about 
different ways to procure tags and our guaranteed tags in New Mexico. But if you're a hunter who, let's say rifle, for example, and you're of that mindset, you'll never draw elk in Arizona, so you haven't been playing the game, I'd like to tell you that for hundreds and hundreds of clients uh, over the last nearly 20 years, we have found our non-resident clients, specifically to rifle, can draw as many as two, in some cases, three or four tags in a 10 to 12-year period. And the way we do that is under our tr- what we call our traditional Diamond Outfitters model, where we put you in, in the rifle draws for our November and December hunts every year. And you will find that for the quality of bulls available on that hunt, 330 to 380 type bulls, and sometimes better for that, but you'll learn that I'm one to under-promise and over-deliver, hopefully. But you'll find in good moisture years, good habitat years, all things going well, um, that you can really have a fairly predictable hunting schedule on these late rifle hunts here in Arizona. Uh, If you say that your answer is, no, Dan, I'm not that interested in hunting with you every three or four years. You know, I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm going to do one elk hunt with you in my entire life. Then we have an arm of our company called Zero Outfitter Fees, which is zerooutfitterfees.com. And you can call me or Matt to talk about this option. And again, the question is, what type of hunter are you? Well, if you're the type of hunter who wants to come out, only wants to hunt the peak of the rut with the most premier draws, then we're going to talk to you and during that consultation about all the hunts that are available uh, through the Zero Outfitter Fee unit structure. And the Zero Outfitter Fee unit structure is going to change from year to year. We get two choices when we put you in the draw, and they're going to be the premier two hunts for that coming up season. And it could change from one year to the next, depending on the previous year's hunting success, harvest numbers, the amount of, of our target bulls we killed, more importantly to future hunters, the target bulls we didn't kill, all the five and six-year-old bulls from the year before that weren't quite shooters, winter or summer kill, predation, et cetera, et cetera. We would only put those hunters in for that model, that zero outfitter fee model, which is a, a membership-based model at $399 a year. And the year you draw in your $5,000, $6,000, $7,000 elk hunt is actually covered just by that $399 a year membership. And I know that may sound confusing or cause a couple people to raise their eyebrows, but just go to zerooutfitterfees.com, click on how it works or homepage, and then call Matt or I with questions about it. So we've addressed two different types of hunter. The guy that says, hey, I want to hunt elk with you on a nice routine basis. Uh, I want to hunt good trophy quality. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the traditional Diamond Outfitters model or the Zero Outfitter Fee model. We're still putting you in for the same units, the same genetics, the same herd. But one's a rut hunt with lower draw odds and less tags, and one's a late hunt with more draw odds, more tags, and uh, therefore, consequentially, certainly more hunters and and arguably not as good a weather. You know, November can be cold or snowy, but most of our clients where they're coming from, it's still an improvement from where they came. Now, there's a third model. We've got the diamond outfitter fee model for the guy that wants to draw as frequently as possible. And keep in mind, it's not uncommon for us to have four or five hunters in our camp that's the first year we've ever put them in. I've had archery hunters who drew two out of three years. The last two years, we've had guys do that. Three years ago, we had a guy draw an archery hunt, miss a year, then draw a rifle hunt. So it's important that you understand that there's a couple different ways to do that. I've got a non-resident, actually, that drew two back-to-back archery tags each of the last two years. Completely unexpected, but uh, that's the best thing about Arizona is that our, our clients can do that, is essentially have the chance to draw those tags at any time. Yeah, we, I love that random component to our bonus point system. You don't need preference points. You don't need years of applying. You literally can get drawn for any hunt the first year we put you in. Some hunts are certainly going to do better than others as far as your draws, but that's why you have your consultants at Diamond Outfitters doing all your paperwork for you. Now, there is a last version of this what type of hunt, hunter are you questionnaire, and that is uh, what our clients might have actually built for us uh, when we introduced zero outfitter fees. There's a lot of clients that wanted to do a hybrid model, and I realize, again, that uh, this is just an introductory podcast on the hunt with Matt and Dan today, and you can call us to clarify it, but a hybrid model is something like this. Uh, let's say uh, you're very interested in a premier once-in-a-lifetime hunt as your first choice, peak of the rut top unit for that year, but because you get two choices when you apply with Diamond Outfitters, your second choice could be one of those quote-unquote traditional Diamond Outfitter model late season rifle hunts with the higher draw odds. If you draw your first choice, that premier zero outfitter fee hunt, you have no other guide fees. You're totally paid in full. Uh, You don't owe the outfit or anything. Just tip your guide accordingly and your cook accordingly. If you draw your second choice, you're under the traditional Diamond Outfitters model, and you can do that 
more routinely and you can mix it up. So from one year to the next, you could say, I want all my opportunities in a zero outfitter fee application. I want all my applications in a diamond outfitter fee and you can change it from year to year. If you need to skip a year because of family plans or other hunts, other events, then you just have your guide from Diamond Outfitters, uh, your consultant puts you in for that bonus point. So that's the Diamond Outfitters model. That's the zero outfitter fee model. That's the hybrid model. And then if all of those fail, we have our New Mexico elk opportunities as well. We're going to go into the ways we hunt them during those seasons for both the guided and do-it-yourself hunter here in a few minutes. Matt, do you have anything you want to add to the different models or the way we're hunting them? I know you've had great client success stories with, with the draw as well. So Arizona drawing is not something to be scared of. Uh, it's something to embrace. We're still one of the least expensive Western states to apply in. We should be applying everybody we know that's under 18 years old for juniors hunts. And you can call Matt or Dan to get yourself in the draw before the next deadline. Well said, Dan. Arizona is a must-apply for state. Uh, I can't say that about all the western states, but uh, in Arizona, if you're interested in western big game hunting, it is a must-apply state. You've got a certain percentage of the tags that go to random non-residents disregarding your number of bonus points. You also have the ability to earn a tag in the max bonus point pool by having the highest number of bonus points, whatever that particular hunt or hunt number is. And so there's multiple different ways to uh, acquire a tag, but you cannot win if you don't play. And so you've got to get in that system and and we can help you do that so uh, definitely feel free to give us a call contact us if we can help you get on an elk hunt and don't wait you know arizona gives you rewards called loyalty points for getting involved at the next draw period zero outfitter fees rewards you for loyalty for being around the more benefits increase over time whether it's longer hunts whether it's discounts on best of the west arizona rifles or huskamoscopes or diamond outfitters merchandise or zero outfitter fee merchandise and, you know, we're not the only ones out there. There's Larry Ultimus does a great program. There's a lot of other service providers. We're not the only one out there that does it. Uh, but we would love to help you. We'd love to be your outfitter of choice and take care of all the paperwork and applications for you. We do it all in-house. You can call Dan. That's me at 520-730-8147. You can call Matt, 520-820-4728. Website's diamondoutfitters.com and zerooutfitterfees.com. We'll take care of everything for you. Uh, now let's get to some of the meat, Matt. I'd, I'd like to have a a conversation here for a few minutes about the archery early season, the muzzleloader early season, the rifle early seasons, things you look for if you're a DIY guy, things you look for if you're a going with a guided hunt, uh, and then we'll get into those three types of hunts that are in the later season. But as an outfitter, as a guide, what are the things you're looking for in, for your September, October type hunts that maybe are different than your November, December hunts? Those are two very, very different hunts. Uh, of course, very different times of the year. Elk are doing different things and are approached from an entirely different perspective uh, in those two different times of the year. So um, there's really nothing else to compare to uh, an early season elk hunt, an archery or even one of the, the early firearms hunts. Uh, that, of course, is the mating season, the rut for the elk, and that's when they're bugling, making a lot of noise. They tend to be a lot easier to locate that time of year. And uh, so, again, a very unique time of year to hunt elk. Uh, uh, we're kind of already gearing up our scouting for that, but uh, we're not actually looking for these bulls right now this time of year. Uh, bulls that you find this time of year about half grown and in full velvet and uh, are not doing anything related to where they will be when you're hunting them. So um, it's great to see bulls all summer. Great to get them on our trail cameras. It's fun to watch elk. That's not going to be really beneficial scouting for us. So what we're doing right now is actually looking for concentrations of feed uh, high concentrations of green grass, which of course Arizona has in abundance this year. It's a little bit of an odd year for us here. But uh, concentrations of feed, which are going to concentrate those, those herds of elk, the cow elk in particular, and that is going to lead us to those big bulls. Uh, a lot of our bulls here, in, uh, as they shed velvet and approach the rut, are going to make large moves and uh, and so that's when uh, our scouting is is most critical as we approach the season and we get close to the season uh, i've had individual elk move 20 25 miles on me uh, i've heard of stories where they moved in, in excess of that uh, most elk move a few miles i would say that most elk move out there's probably some elk that that live die shed their antlers and rut in the same drainage i'm sure of that but sure. most of the elk i hunt are not in there not rutting where they spend their summers um, or where they spend their winters for that matter so that early season there's it's it's about the most exciting time of year to hunt elk but as we approach the season then we're going to begin to look at those bulls and get to see those bulls uh, and that's actually going to be last minute scouting those bulls 
bulls are going to be moving into their positions and we're going to be relocating bulls that we found uh, right up until the last minute of the season. Because as elk season begins, which is, uh, I believe, on September 13th this year, I would call that in the kind of the early part of the rut, the early phases of the rut. Things are really starting to crank up about that time, uh, and they will be fully cranked up over that next week or two. A lot of these big bulls especially are just getting to their rutting grounds. They're just making it to the rutting grounds and uh, are going to spend the next two or three weeks actually breeding cows, and those are the big bulls that, that we're wanting to hunt. Elk scouting can be a little bit frustrating, uh, but the great thing about Arizona is we, ha we do have fantastic uh, quality and quantity of elk. And so as we approach those final few weeks before the season, uh, things really start to come together and those big bulls start to move into position. Uh, they start to shift around and, and relocate themselves and kind of establish pecking order and such among the bulls. And uh, that's when things get absolutely critical. And that's when we locate those really big elk that we can then focus and stay on um, for the for the September seasons and the same really thing applies uh, to the uh, the rifle and firearms hunts the rifle and muzzleloader hunts that immediately follow the archery season those elk will still be bugling they will still be rutting and in most cases they will now have had about two weeks of relatively light pressure applied to them from bow hunters uh, of course a few of those elk will be gone now they'll already be in somebody's freezer at that <laughs> point that. and so we'll definitely lose some elk before each of those hunts but uh, there's not, not any other hunts, I think, that compare to those as far as a top-end, upper-echelon quality of hunt uh, than an early-season early, early season elk hunt. That's about as good as it gets. You know, it really is. I, I refer to that hunt every year as Jurassic Park. Uh, as much as I love my wife, my children, my family, and friends, they are the two to three weeks a year where just don't count on daddy for anything. I mean, I... You know, Matt, it, for me, it's not just uh, my job or my livelihood. At the end of the day, it's, it's at my core. It's who I am. I've got to be in elk country that time of year. Matt did a great job describing elk movement and patterns and, and how things change as they get closer and closer to the rut. And I wish I could cite for you right now the actual date and issue, but one of my favorite uh, issues of Arizona wildlife views, and I think I was either, uh, geez, I could have even been pre-teenage years, but at least early teenage years, when the radio uh, callers were really popular, uh, not with any of the type of telemetry we have today, but they did a great study. And when I travel the country doing all my elk hunting seminars at the national conventions, or when I'm doing work for our TV show at the Best of the West talking about elk, I almost always cite this Arizona Wildlife Magazine, uh, Arizona Wildlife Views, I believe is the real name of it. They tagged uh, four bulls. They tagged a spike bull, they tagged a raghorn bull. Uh, I believe the spike bull was a year old at the time of the tag. Uh, the raghorn bull was a three-and-a-half-year-old bull. The six-by-six, six, they tagged two six-by-sixes, the first of which was identified by the team that tagged it and released it as a first-year six-by-six, and they put it four-and-a-half years old. And they tagged a nine-and-a-half-year-old giant six-by-six six bull. They never said what it scored, or if they did, I forgot it. But they made a very clear distinction between the spike bull the raghorn bull, the first year six by six, and the fully mature six by six. They gave all four of them, they, on this article, they put a picture up with a map, and they all had four different colors. And what they did was they wanted to sample two different rut periods, so it was an 18-month survey. And they made sure that for the 18 months, they encompassed two ruts. They identified the rut arbitrarily uh, as September 1st to October 15th. Now, we could talk about whether those are good dates or bad dates. It doesn't matter. They made sure that 18-month study covered both those rut hunts so they could have two years, quote-unquote, worth of data. And what was amazing, the findings were so amazing, was that it made very little difference whether it was the spike bull, the raghorn bull, first year 6x6, or the fully mature 6x6. During that period where it was not the rut, as you looked at it on the colored map of the colored lines for each individual elk, or if you looked at it collectively, there was very little movement, almost like a whitetail. They stayed within about a five to seven mile core area. But during that period from September 1st to October 15th, in some cases, they walked over 100 miles. And the map was hilarious because the colors and the scratch marks and the different colorations were like a, a Where's Waldo video. And Matt, it gives a lot of credence to the notion of when the photosynthesis period is right, when the temperature's right, when the elk are really ready to rut and really ready to breed, they find a herd. They pick out the cows and estrus that are ready to breed. And to your point of why you don't always see the same bull day after day, after they breed a few of those estrus cows, 
if they don't get another cow or two to pop in the next day or two, this survey basically shows that they'll just start walking. They'll stick their nose in the air, they'll bugle, they'll find water, they'll wallow, they'll, re they'll recover from a very brief moment. And keep in mind, they can lose 30 to 40% of their body weight during this 45-day period. And they'll just stick in their nose in the air and they'll start walking. And they'll literally walk across freeways, they'll literally cross into different units, they'll cross into national parks, they'll jump fences, they'll put their life in danger for these glorious 45 days. As my friends like to joke, if you only had 45 days to a year to breed, you'd go through a lot too, right? And uh, it gives a lot of credence to this idea that they just go and go until they find another herd. And then the process starts again. So elk is in the deer family and they, they do have a little bit of a territorial range, but when the rut starts, all things, all bets are really off, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. They can cover massive, massive amounts of ground. And like you said, we've had elk uh, uh, jump entire units and end up two units away getting killed from where they were on trail camera in, say, July or 1st of August in, in Velvet, getting ready to, to, to kick off the season. And so uh, that time period, exactly like you are mentioning, is a really dramatic movement for elk. Lots of big shifts, and that's, that's kind of helps shift genes around Arizona. Uh, we have to look back to the earlier part of our conversation and realize that Arizona's elk, uh, for the most part, stem from those 83 elk that were put on top of the Colorado Plateau back in 1913. So we often talk about different genetics and different parts of the state and stuff, but it all really harks back to that these are elk and uh, they all stem from one general area. So they all have slight differences and different characteristics and such, but they do like to move. They do like to cover ground. And they, like Dan said earlier, they were a plains animal. And so these elk originally evolved covering vast amounts of ground, similar to the American bison. And we have pushed them into the trees and into the mountains. We have kind of turned the elk into a mountain animal. So they have the ability to cover vast, vast distances in very short amounts of time when needed. You know, when you think about all the elk hunts you've done for yourself and your family and dozens and dozens and dozens of clients for Borderland Adventures over the years, when you think about elk, it's really fun to introduce elk, whether it's archery rifle on the early season to a client for the first time, uh, because a walking elk bull is not a walking human. And I've had many clients when we're trying to make a stock talk about, uh, well, let's do this and let's get out in front of that elk. And a lot of the times I'm like, game on, let's do it. But that walking bull is going to require, and, and I, I mean, I'm not certainly in as great a shape as a lot of my Diamond Outfitters guys, but I'm in okay shape. I mean, I still get after it and I'm thinking to myself, this guy has no idea what he just asked for because a walking elk is not a walking human. And, and that elk's walk, especially if he's trying to put cows to bed, get to a wallow or get to water or, or go respond to another bugle, his walk is damn near my sprint these days in my 40s. And it's only going to get worse from here. I know that. But I know there's some, some cool stories about trying to pursue elk on the move compared to letting them bed down. There's a lot of different strategies. I think one of the things when we talk about the early season that I'd want the non-guided elk hunter to know. You could probably fool their ears once during the rut. You could probably fool their eyes once, maybe even twice. But you never, ever, 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 did I mention ever, Matt? Ever. Ever uh, fool their nose. So uh, I, make... I, I love that old saying, they'll see you once, hear you twice. Excuse me, they'll see you three times. Yeah. Hear you twice, but they'll only smell you once. It's game over. Yeah. And, and you and I know that look in a bull's eye especially a mature bull, uh, when the gig is up. And your client may not yet know the gig is up. He may still think we're in the game. But there's that look, that first bull. And, and if we're talking about a spike bull, if we're on a cow hunt, maybe we got a raghorn bull in front of us. But if we've got a screaming 8, 9, 10-year-old Jurassic bull in front of us, 350-plus mature bull, he's played the game, he's done this before, he smells you. Even if he doesn't turn and bolt, he knows enough to know not to make another mistake. He knows he's made his mistake. He knows that that could be the last mistake he's ever made. And even the best hunter at that point, if they're not in a position to make a shot, not only are probably going to lose the opportunity at that moment of that bull, but very well could lose that opportunity on that elk for the entire hunt. That opportunity for that bull may be over. If a truly mature Arizona giant bull, once he feels like he's been disrupted from his pattern, he'll do whatever it takes to survive. That's oftentimes the final straw. Um, these elk are, like I said, really finicky. And especially if you've got a big mature bull who's been through this routine a few different years, he feels like he, someone's on to him or someone's uh, messing with his normal, normal patterns. And uh, he could absolutely pick up, move 10, 15, 20 miles overnight. And by the time you get up in the morning and get out there looking for him the next morning, he could be an entirely different unit, theoretically. I remember one of my great friends and a, and a good friend of yours, Bob Stevens, yeah. from the San Carlos Apache tribe, 
when I was still in the Air Force, I told him I was thinking of becoming a hunting guide, and he smiled, and he was encouraging me to do it. And Bob, if you're listening, God bless you. You're a mentor and a friend. And uh, he said, are you really going to do this business? Are you going to do it big? Are you going to do it right? And I said, God willing, yes, sir, I am. And he says, then I, then I have to tell you something. As your friend, I have to be very honest with you. And I was like, man, this guy's been guiding 20, 30, 40 years. Bob, whatever you want to tell me, lay it on me. I can handle it. If you think this isn't something I can do, whatever you're thinking right now, don't sugarcoat mm -hmm. it. Hit me with it. And Bob said, damn, I'm getting goosebumps right now. You can see it. You can't see it on the air. But Bob Stevens, God bless you, my friend. You're, you're one of a kind. He said, and I tell this story at, uh, I tell the story at all my speaking engagements. I've told it on the TV show before. But Bob Stevens says, the problem with the white man elk hunter, you're always trying to tell the elk what to do instead of listening to what they're telling you. And here's how I see that play out. Now, in this segment of The Hunt with Matt and Dan, we're talking about the early season still. And what I mean by that is, you know, Matt, if, if you or I were to walk into a sportsman's warehouse, a Cabela's, a Bass Pro, anywhere in the western United States during elk season, you're going to see dozens, maybe even a hundred different varieties of elk calls. What makes one good versus another, one brand, one color, one read, two read, triple read, that could be a whole nother, whole nother podcast. But what I will tell you is my clients, year after year after year, have commented on, you know, Dan, it seemed like you had a bunch of diaphragm calls, you had a bugle tube, you may have had a dozen different calls, and in the seven or ten days I hunted with you, I think I heard you bugle once and cow call six or seven times. Don't get me wrong, we still killed a great bull, but they kind of wonder, you know, why did I have these necklace of diaphragm calls, or why did I have mm -hmm. all these different things? And, and it's because of that conversation, Matt, with Bob Stevens. And I really thought about it. And this is where I lose a lot of my followers. They start looking at me cross-eyed when I say what I'm about to say. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of them believe what I'm about to say. They get a little, hey, Dan, you're a little pie in the sky. Uh, you spent out too much time with the elk. You're starting to get kooky. But what Bob Stevens taught me that moment on the reservation, he, he may not even realize it, was it was powerful. He's saying, the elk are bugling, you know? And believe it or not, you know this, but if you spend enough time with these elk at the right time of year, you know each, each bull's voice. And more importantly, what I call, or, or maybe Uncle Ted Nugent would call, the beautiful ballet of the bull elk, mm -hmm. is there's a call. There's a bugle for, I'm in love. There's a bugle for, I'm looking for love. There's a bugle for, I would like to kill you, <laughs> and I'm going to kill yeah. you if I see you. There's a bugle for, hey... Hey guys, it's July, just warming up my voice. You know, if you can think about a human emotion regarding love, let's say, elk to a certain degree share that and they have a voice for it. So what Bob told me that day is, and you know what really gets my goat sometimes, Matt, is we're out there with a hunter working our tail off and Arizona's blessed with a lot of accessible country for better or for worse. Sometimes that accessible country backfires and I'm not picking anybody who's listening to the Hunt with Matt and Dan podcast if you've been this guy. But I might be on an elk that I've been working since 3.34 in the morning, you know, listening from the truck, trying to get an idea of where they're going to travel so that when it's legal hunting light, I can start making a move. And more than one time, a mile, two miles into it, I'll cross a road where a doggone pickup truck comes down the road, shuts off the engine, sticks a bugle tube out the window, bugles, waits 7 to 15 seconds, doesn't hear a bugle, fires up the truck, drives down the road a couple hundred yards and does it again. Then when they drive by my camp, with all these dead elk hanging in the trees, they're complaining about they haven't seen any elk. Why haven't they seen any elk? So again, what Bob Stevens said is, why don't you listen to what the elk are telling you so that you know how to respond instead of trying to overcall the number one reason why the unguided hunter doesn't kill big bull elk consistently is overcalling, overcalling, overcalling. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. Uh, I've been both of those hunters uh, on both extremes of the calling spectrum. I'm going to circle back real quick because I'm really glad that you brought up Bob Stevens. He's a mentor of mine as well. And I think that's one of the things that also helped to, helped to originally connect Dan and myself. Uh, uh, he's known Bob Stevens for many, many years. And uh, Bob Stevens was actually my father-in-law's guiding partner back in the 80s and 90s. And so I've been with my wife since high school. And uh, as soon as I kind of began to make my way into that family. I was introduced to Bob Stevens and, and uh, hunted with him on the reservation back in the 1990s and still keep in constant contact with Bob and, uh, again, uh, one of my mentors as well. So I wanted to just come full, full circle on that, and, and that's one of the things that helped to connect Dan and I as well. 
I have seen both extremes of that. I took a lot of grief uh, a few years ago for overcalling. I even had a guide in a uh, well, in pine country there in Williams uh, give me a little grief about it. But we were at flat laying bulls down and, be, and, and staying on big bulls. So uh, I've run behind bulls uh, to to at top speed, uh, bugling every 30 seconds uh, like a donkey, just uh, braying at them nonstop and had them turn around and come screaming back into us and had to get super, super aggressive with hyperactive cow calling and aggressive bugles and literally chasing bulls. Now, that's not how I normally hunt. Normally, I would let those elk tell us what they're doing. We just continue to J-hook and work around the front of those elk and eventually try to intercept those elk and put our hunter in front of an elk without those elk knowing that, uh, that we exist or are on the planet. But I, I've definitely done both extremes of that from uh, putting the calls away, staying silent, uh, letting the elk do all the work. Now, when the elk are bugling, uh, you can let them do the work. Uh, for, you really can let them do the work. Uh, but I have run into situations uh, that it's, it's kind of funny because we've actually taken some grief from hunters saying, I heard you out there bugling all morning long, just screaming. There's no way you're ever going to kill an elk like that. And then you have to show them that the elk that you did kill while they were listening to you from the base of the hill um, by getting ultra aggressive and loud and obnoxious and stuff that if you had not done that before or hadn't seen that done, you might think it's the most bizarre behavior for a hunter to, to do in the woods to the point where we're literally picking up tree branches 10 12 feet long six inches in diameter and running and crashing them into rock piles and other trees and oak trees and trying to create the sound uh, that a seven to eight hundred pound elk uh, uh, with 55 60 inch main beams may be making as he's tearing apart an oak thicket so sound that can be heard across a valley we're screaming on bugle tubes rolling boulders down a mountain and causing absolute chaos which seems completely counterintuitive to hunting in general and it can absolutely send someone into a tizzy and, and really shock some people but there are times for that occasionally mm -hmm. I have run into times uh, where the meek method uh, the kind of uh, staying quiet letting the bulls do all the work method is not not panning out for us it's not working and uh, and, and then we ramp it up a little bit and that doesn't work you and know, then you've got to ramp and ramp and ramp until it does work. That's right. And what I love what Matt said is when they're bugling in the morning, you know, I'm thinking about it as a former military officer, you know, there's your enemy, so to speak, giving away his position, right? So tactically, you know, if, if the bulls are bugling actively in the morning, get the wind. After you get the wind, the second thing you do is get the wind. And then after the second thing you do, you get the wind one more time in your favor. Swing back around, check that wind again. Damn right. Swing <laughs> back around, check that wind one more time. Uh -huh. And then go ahead and start pursuing the elk while they're bugling, while they're still giving away their position. Uh, some of these elk personalities, especially as you get deeper and deeper in the rut, the stuff we would try one day magically doesn't work the next day. Or we've all been on elk hunts, if you've been experienced elk hunts or guiding elk hunts for any amount of time, where you could be standing in the exact same piece of real estate to the inch that you were in the day before where you heard thousands of bugles and not heard a single bugle the next day. And that's really one of the advantages of having a professional outfitter and guide on some of these premium elk hunts or archery elk hunts in the early season because knowing what to do, knowing not when to not do it, and then knowing when to do some of these, call them quote-unquote crazy mm -hmm. antics that mm -hmm. work, you know, and that's mm -hmm. the craziest that's awesome. part is when they work. And it's a lot of fun. I remember very well many years ago on the Coconino with an archery client, Mark Sipe, if you're listening, God bless you. We hunted a bull called Corkscrew. Now, Corkscrew was a 370, 380 mainframe on one side and just a big kudu bull on the other, if you can picture the African antelope kudu. And we hunted this bull as one of those really wet years up north. I think it monsooned on us every day, as a matter of fact. The roads were very difficult to travel, but it was a great year for antler growth. It was a great rut. It was a great hunt. Uh, we were in multiple bulls every day, but it was one of those hunts where the hunter, Mark, he wanted to really pursue a specific bull, this corkscrew bull. I was not, Matt, in love with this bull at all, which kind of made it funny because I'm like, there's a lot of legitimate 370 to infinity type bulls out here, and we're going to hunt one from a score perspective that's going to do nothing, but he was the freakiest, nastiest bull sure. on the mountain. I get that. And yeah. every time we went in to get gas, somebody's like, hey, have you seen corkscrew? Have you seen corkscrew? And I'm thinking to myself, who cares about this corkscrew bull? He's ugly as sin. He ain't worth a darn. He's ugly. I don't want to see anything with him. But I wasn't the tag holder, Mark was. So we are actively after this corkscrew bull. Now, what made this even more fun, and I think this is a long time ago, so I think I'm remembering Mark's personality right, was he wanted me to cow call, 
He wanted me, and I was recording this, by the way. He wanted me to rake trees. He wanted me to uh, break branches. Uh, everything but bugle. And I don't know if it was a video or so, his grandfather or what his reason was, but he made it clear I could do anything I want as his professional guide but bugle. I was not allowed to bugle. So here I am, and I'm not a big bugler per se anyways, unless the elk are telling me to bugle, then I'll bugle all day long. But this particular bull was very old, was very, very smart. He was in an area of the unit where a lot of people weren't going, which was nice. I kind of felt like we had a legitimate 10 miles to ourselves, which was glorious. We could get on this bull every day. But he was, despite his goofy frame, the king of that area. And I say that because he always maintained 20 to 35 cows at all time, the week before the rut till the day we killed him. And I guess I'm letting the cat out of the bag a little bit there, but I'll tell you what happened. We hunted him every day. We were able to do those. It was that magical combination of where the monsoon was just right, where you could be on your feet all day. The pine needles weren't crunchy. They were bugle and they were very routine. He would put his cows down at about the same time of day. He would check them once. He would go to the same wallow and he would come back. And we always knew we'd have these little bitty opportunities. But every time an elk, a legitimate elk bugled at him, he would not bugle back, but he would pick up his cows and move about two or 300 yards and he'd reset them right back down. I mean, you could literally read this bull's eyes. He was telling you, been there, done that. Didn't matter if it was a hunter, didn't matter if it was an actual bull. He had a ferocious bugle of his own, but this particular bull, Corkscrew, didn't use his own vocal cords to respond to an elk. He mostly only used it to impress his girls. And as the hunt went on and on, I was like, we've done everything right so many times, but every time we're just within striking distance, and you know as well as I do how difficult it is to stalk a bull with 20 to 35 cows. That's a lot of eyes. And what ultimately happened was I had to pull rank on Mark with no warning to him, uh, we were getting in on these elk, and now it's getting towards the end of the hunt. Still light sprinkle, which is my preferred way to hunt elk, bugling elk, by the way. And uh, we would make a little move, and I don't know if a lead cow would see something or smell something. or And these elk, Matt, would just get up. He'd move them like two or 300 yards. We were painstakingly slow, hour, hour and a half stalks. It seemed like he just kept picking them up, picking them up, picking them up. So finally, I was like, this is it, man. We've only got a couple days left. I've got to do something drastic. Corkscrew would not bugle very often, but as I mentioned, when he did, it stopped, you know, it, it made the hair on the back of your mm -hmm. neck stand up. And I told Mark that we could see all the cows bedded down. In fact, the closest cows, Matt, were only 25, 30 yards from us, you know, oh, and in, in a light mist, in a light mist, a little bit of fog and light rain with very damp ground. I told Mark, I said, you know what? And I, I totally set him up. I'm being totally honest here. I said, here's what you got to do. You set up right here. I'm going to drop back about 60 yards. Don't pay any attention to me. I'm just going to be doing my thing. But when he bugles, not, not any noise I make, when he bugles, and I told him before I left, go ahead and knock an arrow now. I said, when he bugles, be ready. And he literally said, be ready for what? I said, just be ready. And thinking back to our conversation with Bob Stevens, I got back about 60 yards. I got my camera on a little tripod. Here come the goosebumps again. I got this camera on a tripod like a baseball player waiting for a home run pitch. I sat there with a perfect juniper branch. I sat there with my tripod, which I can use as a noisemaker if I needed mm -hmm. to. And I had my diaphragm and my bugle tube, my biggest uh, herd bull diaphragm call I have that I hadn't used the whole hunt, by the way. I think I had to take out the package that morning. <laughs> and when this bull bugled, I didn't bugle back after he bugled. I did what you and I would call a shock bugle. Mm -hmm. I just cut, cut him, him off. off. Yep. Oh my gosh. The first look I got was Mark looking back at me like, dude, I told you not to bugle, right? But I slammed this bull. And in my voice, as Bob would say, I was telling him, hey, guess what? I'm here. I'm not out there in the distance. I'm in, I'm your, living in your living room, room. And I've got my arm around your yep. girl. And that was all it took. Here comes corkscrew. I mean, on a tear, blood-curdling bugle, steps six yards in front of Mark. Mark's already at full draw. Camera's rolling. Six yards. Sends one right into the bread basket. Pins him around. I'm excited, but somehow, thanks to the good Lord above, my brain said, switch calls. And I somehow went from my diaphragm of the bull to a cow. He spun around, walked by at 35 yards. I cow called him, looked back, and Mark just sank. Perfect shot right in behind and and within the next couple hours, he was ours. And that's the story of Corkscrew, which got a lot of notoriety, some magazine play. 
even though I thought it was the damn goofiest bull, but ladies and gentlemen, what I could tell you is even the most dominant bull on the mountain has his weak spot. And if you spend enough time with them on a do-it-yourself hunt, or if you hire the right outfitter that spends those times with the elk in the off season, or as the season is imminent, you really know their preferences. You, you know their behavior. You know how they talk. And as goofy as that will sound to a lot of you, the fact remains we killed that bull because we got to know him. You know, I've got a really similar story. This actually happened in the same area that you're talking about. And, uh, and we had to, again, switch tactics. We'd stayed on this bull for a couple of different days and nothing was working. He'd respond back to us. We'd cow call. We'd move in. He'd push his cows off. We'd make a peep. He'd pick up and move. Finally, we, we were getting frustrated with this and really struggling with this bull. And, and you can actually see this in our hunt uh, on YouTube, you'll find a video called The Perfect Storm. It's a video that we put out a few years ago with Borderland Adventures uh, done by Bivy Productions. That's Adam McLean. And Shelvin Murphy is the hunter. And we've got Mario Guisto back behind Colin. Uh, I'm actually uh, raking trees, Colin as well. I'm kind of sticking with the, the client at the time. And uh, this bull starts moving. He, starts, he just starts packing the mail across the unit, and he's leaving. And uh, we decided it was now or never, and we were going to get him killed. So we just stayed on, and we shadowed this bull. We moved about four and a half miles over the next few hours, uh, staying on this bull, challenging him and getting really aggressive. And finally, we, we had an opportunity. He slowed down a little bit. We got a glimpse of his rump and kind of had a, had a key, a pinpoint location on him. And we rushed in. We rushed in close, bugled. And as soon as he cracked that bugle... We were already on it, laying into him hard and cutting him off. And uh, he choked on his bugle, like it caught him off guard and literally wheels around and comes from about 90 into five yards wow. in, in, in a few moments. And, and unfortunately, I think that's mostly what you see in the video uh, of the elk anyway. Uh, there's a lot of uh, preliminary bugling and noise, but uh, finally he wheels and turns uh, after two and a half or three hours. At this point, it's 9.30 in the morning in elk season. The day is long since over, uh, and we've moved across half of this elk unit, essentially pushing this bull and kind of pressuring him, kind of bumping. He knew something wasn't right, but we were still acting like an elk. He thought we, we may have still been a bull. And uh, finally, we convinced him that we were a bull. We had that rush in, that last little bit of movement. We got in close, just absolutely surprised the heck out of him. And he was like, uh-oh, now we're in fighting distance. It's, a, it, it's like a defense mechanism for us. If uh, somebody is yelling at you across the parking lot, you're not worried about them until they're in your face. And this guy steps out from around your truck and he's in your face and wants to fight you. Yeah. Now you've got your dukes up and now yeah. you've got to defend yourself. Uh, where when he's a quarter mile away yelling at you across a football field, it's really irrelevant and you're in no danger. Same thing with these elk. Um, and we, we had that opportunity to kind of push the envelope and get in a little bit almost too close. A lot of folks would have said way too close and just fire him up basically and get him to turn on a dime and come trotting right on in basically. There's so much that goes into this and nothing beats time in the field practicing some of these techniques, but there is a right way and a wrong way with hunter etiquette to do that. It doesn't matter what state you're in out West, look at your hunting regs and figure out when your early season for elk closes and make sure that after the closing hunt, that there's not another one that starts the next day. And provided there's not another big game hunt that starts the next day, and of course this is all subject to your local state hunting regulations, here in Arizona, if you need to go out in the off season while they're still bugling and go out and try some of these different techniques. But folks, most importantly, instead of going out there playing a blowing a bunch of different calls and seeing what happens, is just listen. Spend that time listening. Get the wind right. Treat it like a hunt. Again, please make sure there's no hunting seasons open where you could ruin anybody's day. But go out there, get the wind, and, and listen to these elk and, and, and understand what certain calls mean and, and know when you can make a move and when you can't make a move. And, you know, if you hear elk fighting, their eyes are closed. If you're destroying a tree, their eyes are closed. That might be an opportunity, if you've got the wind right, to literally run. Like, stop what you're doing and run and we close that distance. In New Mexico, doing exactly that. We hear a bull raking a tree, uh, crushing brush. He's up in a juniper. And uh, I uh, grabbed my hunter by the shirt collar, and we started trotting, and we ran into, I think, 28 yards, leaned around a tree, ranged him, and, and double-lunged him while he had his head in the tree. Uh, he kept raking the tree. Didn't know what happened, didn't hear the bow go off, and he died in his foot tracks. He actually raked the tree for about seven, eight, maybe ten more seconds, 
and he got a little punch drunk and ended up falling over in his tracks. It was one of the most spectacular things I'd ever seen. The elk died right there, 28 yards from us, right where he was standing when he took the arrow. I love it. And that's just a perfect example of Matt describing is, is what a professional can do for a hunter is understanding the difference between right now we've got to be in super stealth mode, as Greg and I would call it, or other times in elk country, you are literally running as fast as the slowest person in your group can move. And people don't understand during archery or early rifle, early muzzleloader elk season, there's a time and a recipe for both where you have really got to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time, and then you've got to get super stealthy again. And again, get out there, get in the woods, do it when there's not an open hunting season, find out what these elk are doing, find out why they're making the sounds they make, start getting to know these elk, and, and you'll really find your success on not just bulls, but trophy bulls really, really uh, will go up dramatically. And it's a great way to spend some time. If you want to recruit a young or new hunter into our sport, that is one way to do it, is to get them out there in the woods during that September, October season, anywhere out west when it really is like Jurassic Park. You're listening to The Hunt with Matt and Dan. We're sponsored today by Best of the West Arizona Custom Rifles, Huskama Scopes, ZeroOutfitterFees.com, Diamond Outfitters of Arizona, and H&M Landing's Half Day Boat, the premiere with Tim Green. Tim's at 619-222-1144. Matt, we've covered a lot of the early season for archery, muzzleloader, rifle. We've, we've shared some awesome stories and success and, and even some failures. And now let's switch gears. Now let's get, uh, get our mindset wrapped around the late rifle season, the late muzzleloader, and the late archery hunts, all of which, by the way, uh, at least in our circles, are in the same units, the same genetics, the same elk, same trophy potential, but different mindset, not only of the elk, but also of the hunter. Absolutely. These late elk hunts are actually a great hunt. These are, these are a little bit underrated, in my opinion. Uh, these can be fantastic hunts. And really, I'm going to first kind of focus on the late rifle hunts. I will relate some of this to those late archery seasons as well. But the vast majority of the tags are available in the late rifle seasons. Of course, these typically start right after Thanksgiving, oftentimes the morning after Thanksgiving. And this is a very different time of year. Uh, these elk have left their rutting grounds at this point. They've traveled back to uh, what I would consider to be their bull refuges. Uh, we sometimes call them bull holes, where we've got these really, really rugged pieces of country, almost inaccessible pieces of country, and sometimes that are going to hold these elk post-rut in the recovery period. Uh, these, these elk have lost uh, 10 to 15% of their body mass, body weight during that rut by chasing those cows. And, and here we get into uh, uh, mid to late October, the rut kind of dies down. Of course, at that time of year, we've got to keep in mind that we've got a lot of deer hunters headed into the field as well in Arizona, which adds a little bit of pressure and noise to some of the, the back country and even Arizona's front country. And that's going to push these elk back into those refuge areas. And, and that's where we're going to hunt these elk uh, in those later seasons is in their wintertime refuges. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things about that time of year is it's been my experience. These elk move very, very little. Uh, very little at all. Um, I have a great example of that from this year. This is quite the polar opposite of what's going on during the bow season. But uh, my dad had a tag this year. My dad do it, drew a tag. So I grabbed one of my guides and lifelong friends, Steve, and, and we headed up uh, to central Arizona. And uh, we got up there on Wednesday evening, two days before the hunt. Went out to my favorite vantage point, uh, looked in the very back corner of a canyon, uh, about two and a half, three miles away from where we were sitting. And, uh, and found three bulls standing exactly where I had just expected them to be standing, right where they should have been standing, where I had hunted bulls in years prior. And I took, we sat down, and within 30 seconds of lifting our binoculars and setting our tripods up, we were on these elk. And, and uh, so I just slammed my binoculars back down and said, we can just head on down to the, uh, head on back down to camp. We're, we're good. And he was uh, incredulous. <laughs> we've, got, we've got other bulls to scout. We've got to look around. I said, no, we're going to kill that one, the yeah. highest one on the right. Absolutely. That's going to be the bull we're going to kill in a couple of days. And yeah. he, he was confused as to why we weren't going to watch him more, scout him more, or do anything about it. And I said, the bulls, we're going to shoot that bull right where he's standing. He's not going anywhere. And so the next morning, my dad and my brother-in-law uh, and uh, uh, my nephew arrived. Middle of the afternoon, we drive him out there. It's snowing. We've got low visibility. I decided to drive them 10 miles around the unit to come on around the backside of this bull, and we're going to take a little walk. And, and I hadn't looked at this bull since the day before, but I had known I could glass a rock pile adjacent to him. And, and so I walked these guys out there about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 
and it's still it's spitting snow on us. And I lean over the top of my rock pile, and I, of course, suck my head right back down. And say, it's about 350 right there across from us, right exactly where we anticipated him being and right exactly where he was standing the day before. Well, at this point, my dad and brother-in-law are thinking, uh, yeah, you know, well, who knows where they're going to be tomorrow? And, and uh, that's how hunters think, you know. You're like, well... <laughs> I wish it was opening day right now. We'd have this elk dead, but it's a low probability that's going to be there tomorrow. But I had all the confidence in the world. I said, we're good, guys. We'll pack it up. We'll go back and have a nice dinner, and we're going to shoot this elk tomorrow morning. And uh, they kind of giggled at me, and they said, well, wouldn't that be nice? You know, that's kind of, that's funny. And we get up the next morning, zero visibility. We sit out on the rock pile, and I know the elk's across from us. At this point, we've moved into 200 yards, and we can't see anything. We sit for three hours. I finally just give in and say, okay, guys, we'll go back and warm up, get some dry clothes on. We do exactly that. Um, now we had, of course, seen the elk two days in a row, but about 24 hours apart. Now it's been another 24. Walk the guys back in there about 1130, lunchtime, essentially. Get them back to the rock pile very quietly. Next thing you know, uh, we get a little tiny break in the, the flurries of snow. And uh, there's the elk standing exactly in the position that he was before. My dad put a perfect bullet in him, and that was the end of it right there. But, and, I, and I've had that experience for years and years and years and years. And this is a hunt that I think scouting is everything. If you can find a bull, you've got it. it we, we can get him killed if we can get our eyeballs on him. And so uh, preseason scouting right before the hunt, leading up to that hunt, is absolutely critical. I think that's a totally different aspect, is these elk are going to be very difficult to get to. And keep in mind, we put a very simple bullet in that elk at about 210 yards, I think it was. And then the work began. It was in an absolutely brutal place. Well, that's why he was there. And so you're gonna find those elk in rugged little uh, hidey holes. They're gonna be tough to get to. Uh, but if you use your glassing techniques, back up away from the mountain, we can find those elk at a great distance, strategize a plan, and then go in there and get them killed with absolute efficiency. You know, I've had a lot of, of clients over the years, Matt, ask me, how come your elk hunt price for the late hunt is equally as expensive as the early season hunt? They'd say, shouldn't the early season hunt be more since a quote unquote more trophy hunt? And as I think about dozens or hundreds of elk hunts in my life and certainly hundreds of elk hunts in Diamond Outfitters history, the opposite is really true. If I was going to charge more for a hunt, it would actually be the late season because the amount of work that's required it's amazing to, especially guys that don't live in states with elk, but in some cases, you're better off, and it's more important to have guided professional help on these late season hunts than even in some cases on the early season hunts. Now, I'm not trying to cut off my nose to spite my face. I can certainly validate why you'd want to guide either way, but the, here's the deal, right? On the early hunt, they're bugling, they're fighting, they're moving, they're rutting, they're chasing, they're making all kinds of mistakes. Fast forward two months, even if there's been a secondary estrus, a secondary rut, these elk have lost 40% of their body weight. In some western states, maybe not as bad in Arizona, but some western states, they know that nasty winter's coming. They've got snow. In some cases, they've got wolves and grizzly bears. So they really prefer to be back in solitary confinement, as I like to call it. And what that means is your 10, 12-year-old bulls may be by themselves. Your 6 to 10-year-old bulls might be in bachelor groups of other 6 to 10 bulls. If you're glassing on a late-season hunt, looking at 20 to 30 elk, cows, thinking you're in the right spot, go to the other side of the mountain because where the cows are, the bulls aren't. Bulls will not be there. They do not Absolutely want anything not. to do. The, the last time they were with cows, that caused them a lot of grief, right? So now they're thinking about putting winter weight on, gouging themselves on food, and as little movement as possible. And this is where really having professional help uh, as, as a guide and outfitter can come in handy. Now, if you're a do-it-yourself guy or gal, no problem. Just understand that the scouting effort you're doing in the 10 20, 30 days before the late season is going to pay you huge dividends, maybe even more so than on the early season. If you can pinpoint a bull, especially one that's a full mature bull, whether he's in a bachelor group of other age, similar age class bulls or by himself, his preference is to be fat, dumb, and happy, as Ron White would say, naked in a beanbag chair, eating Cheetos and not doing anything else because he knows time's not on his side. He's got to recover from his injuries from the rut. Got to put that winter weight back on before it's too late and gouge on as much food to get that nutrition, get his health back up uh, before that winter comes. And, and as a result, for the hunters willing to, to do a little bit more work, to put in a little bit more pain, are rewarded. And in the nearly 20-year history of Diamond Outfitters, you'll find that it really doesn't matter 
whether you want to do the early season hunt, which has a more difficult draws, but you get the benefit of bugling elk, or you get the late season hunt where you get to hunt maybe two, three, four times with us in a 10 or 12 year period. Because again, it's the same genetics. It's the same piece of real estate. It's the same elk. It's just another uh, way of hunting them with a, with a more frequency draw at opportunity. It goes back to what type of hunter are you? Do you want to take a shot at the diamond outfitters model with the high frequency tags? Do you want to do a zero outfitter fee model uh, where you're not going to have as much draw success, statistically speaking, although you still could draw the first year? Or what most of our clients are, are turning out to be is a hybrid where they want to take some type of shot at both. At the end of the day, there's very little that beats a true Western big game elk hunt, even as big as a coos deer nut as I am and some other species. Elk, once you've hunted them, really sticks in your heart. It will stay there a long time. This is the conclusion of the hunt with Matt and Dan. Our series here uh, uh, today specifically covered Rocky Mountain Elk out west. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, give Matt or I a call at 520-820-4728 or 520-730-8147 or diamondoutfitters.com or even zerooutfitterfees.com. Get in touch with us. This is our elk episode. We appreciate you listening. God bless our troops and our first responders, and thanks for listening. Thanks again, folks. We will see you on the mountain. The Hunt with Matt and Dan is brought to you by the premier half-day fishing boat out of San Diego at H&M Landing, Zero Outfitter Fees, and Huskama Optics. 